Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Live Ape, a podcast about man, society and the planet. Today will be the first part in our series on COVID-19. I'll be joined by Dr. Ricky, a GP in Leicester, and we'll be looking at things such as why are there three strains of COVID-19? Why a vaccine is no foregone conclusion? And what treatments are being looked at to tackle the virus? My name is Marvin Fithian, teacher of mathematics, your host, and this is The Live Ape. strange times. So far, to date, we have 287,397 confirmed coronavirus cases and unfortunately 11,895 deaths. Uh, with me is Dr. Ricky, our GP in Leicester. Welcome. Thanks Marvin, great to be here. Uh, so, coronavirus 19. I know that the CO stands for Corona, VI, virus, D for disease, therefore it's COVID-19. Yep. It's also called SARS-CoV-2. Uh, can you tell us why that is? So SARS is a severe uh, acute respiratory syndrome, and that's what it causes. And coronavirus 2 is what it was said to have come from, and it's mutated um, and turned into coronavirus um, strain 19, also known as COVID-19. What do you think we need to know about coronavirus up to this point, maybe in terms of its you know, history? Well, we know that you know, it's, it, it's come from the China region, Wuhan region of um, China, and it's spread quite rapidly throughout the world and it's causing quite a lot of disruption to a lot of the lives of people. I saw somewhere that it's come from animals, a zoonotic disease? That's right. Um, so it's, it, it, they, they're postulating that it has come from animals. Um, some people say bats or some types of um, uh, other animals. And it has crossed over to humans. So I've got an article here from disease ecologist Peter Dazak. He says that we need more research to pinpoint the precise path and source of the virus. But he says it is zoonotic, it, it jumps from animals to humans, uh, often originating in bats, but possibly it can travel through another species on its way to infecting humans. Uh, he says that he and other researchers have found over 500 new coronaviruses in bats over the last 10 years alone. But Dazak says that bats are very rarely found in wildlife markets like the one where the outbreak is suggested to have begun. Now, obviously, other people on social media, for instance, are suggesting that the novel virus was not engineered in a lab. Is it right? Is it is it not engineered in a lab or...? No, I mean, uh, it, all the information that we're getting is that it has uh, come from nature. So all these conspiracy theories that maybe it was created in a lab, you think that that is yeah, there's unlikely? Yeah, there's not enough evidence to say that, really, and, uh, you know... Um, Think it's quite a lot of speculation and yeah, yeah i remember hearing about environmentalists who you know suggest that in the future there could be such thing as eco-terrorism i mean i've got a, a journal recently published here in nature tracing it back the evolution of this sars covid 2 and compared the structure to other coronaviruses to show that it's the product of natural evolution they've 
looked at this uh, and they've looked at something called the receptor binding domains of the novel coronavirus. This idea of it having a locking key used by the virus to access host cells. Yeah, and that's how viruses transmit um, from uh, one um, place to another and they get into cells of um, different animals and then go on to replicate and produce more and then are released and those uh, released uh, viruses are then spread. So they're saying that it's this study suggests it's the result of natural selection, not the product of genetic engineering. And there's a fantastic diagram. And it, you can see it, it, it compares the nucleotides, the amino acids uh, of the genome sequencing. Yeah. And you can see that it's it compares the bats and pangolins, an old version of SARS, and then this new SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. And we can see that it, it does look like it is similar. Is that not something that could be done in a lab? We, we don't know uh, that it has been created in a lab from all the information that we have so far. It does look like it has spread uh, from uh, an unknown source. Our initial reports were from areas in Wuhan that had live meat markets. Um, that uh, potentially were selling bats. Okay, now, uh, one alarming thing I read um, is that no coronavirus has ever had a vaccine, and obviously the common cold is a form of coronavirus, is it not? And Yeah, that's correct. This idea that it has something called recombinant RNA uh, and three strains, is that true? You know, if, has there never been a vaccine? Is this, is this a problem? Yeah, well, I mean, the common cold is a very mild illness. Um, so most of the time you won't, you wouldn't need a vaccine for something so uh, minor. Um, it doesn't cause much uh, symptoms um, and often it's, it resolves without much intervention. But, you know, this newer strain is more contagious and it is more deadly. Um, so that's probably why um, people are more interested in getting a vaccine for it. Okay, good. Good news. Yeah. Okay, so this other idea as well, which I wasn't aware of, is that there are in fact three different strains of corona. It says it is already split into three separate strains. This comes from Zhejiang University, Sun Yat-sen University and St. Louis. Rather than being a single virus strain, COVID-19 has already split into three separate strains, which can be grouped into two main strains. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, viruses often change. We call it mutations in the environment, and that's because they're getting replicated so much. And when they are being replicated, um, there's not always the same type of replication going on. And that causes changes in the type of strain that is produced. Um, so we know now that there are a couple types of prevalent strains of coronavirus and there's the S and the L type that you're alluding to basically the S being the older type the uh, you know more widely known one and the L being the more recent um, COVID-19 type which is uh, the more deadly coronavirus infection that's causing um, sort of more fatalities and things. So in effect it's although there are more strains really it's just the one particular strain that is causing all the problems. That's right, it seems so. Okay, so how dangerous is the virus? I mean, I'm just looking at some of the data here and we can see Italy, obviously China we, we know about, but the new cases in China seem to have dropped substantially, only 41 new cases in the last 24 hours. 
Italy, however, uh, are rapidly catching up to China. Uh, they've got 47,000. UK have got 4,000 cases, 89 new cases in the last 24 hours, and 177 total deaths. And the one that seems to be increasing the most, uh, along with Spain and Germany, is the USA, uh, rapidly increasing. So, first of all, how dangerous is the virus? So, COVID-19 is more dangerous than some well-known uh, viruses, such as the common cold, seasonal flu, swine flu, things like norovirus, um, and less dangerous than things like Ebola and MERS, um, SARS. So obviously on social media, etc., I've seen an awful lot about, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Why is everyone in, in a tizzy about this? Because, well, the flu kills lots of people every year and coronavirus hasn't killed that many people. I mean, how dangerous do you think this virus really is? Is that a correct assumption to make? Yeah, so the flu is a, um, a, a deadly virus as well. It's a virus. Um, the flu annually kills around sort of 500 to 600,000 people a year. Um, we have a vaccine for the flu, so that's um, another point that makes um, it more controlled. In terms of how dangerous it is compared to the flu, we know that the coronavirus so far is more deadly than the flu and it was also uh, more effective than the the flu in, in in terms of it being passed on more easily so uh, this is a little bit more dangerous and more serious than the flu really ro what does that mean so or r0 right so ro is the rate of transmission and we know that uh, the RO for coronavirus, um, COVID-19, is approximately 3 to 10. Uh, some people say 3 to 7, uh, approximately days, uh, which it, it doubles, essentially, in um, cases. Okay. The, I've got here the case fatality rate as well as another one. What's the current fatality rate that you know of? How accurate is that? So current rate of fatality or mortality is dependent on age, primarily. Now we know that a lot of people have mild symptoms, some people have severe symptoms, and some people effects really bad and unfortunately can cause death. Um, so the older you are, um, especially people who are above 60 years old, uh, are affected by the virus more than younger people. And now it also depends on if you have other conditions, um, such as heart problems, diabetes, um, chronic respiratory illnesses such as COPD and asthma as well as other conditions where your immune system is lowered. Okay now there was this uh, Joe Rogan in America podcast very popular Michael Osterholm an infectious disease expert he was talking about the dangers of this and how governments uh, should respond uh, what did you pick up from that? Yeah, I mean, from from what he's saying, in his expert opinion, he believes that we, we didn't really take it seriously enough. We thought that this was just a China problem, a Chinese problem, and it wouldn't affect the rest of the world. However, it has. He predicted that it would. He also predicted that this an infection like this would happen. He's, he's even written a book about it um, in 2017-18-ish and uh, describes the situation where a virus, in fact, coronavirus, uh, he modelled uh, would cause a widespread pandemic, causing disruption to things like supply chains and stuff as well. 
of course, there's been a lot of controversy about the UK response, Boris Johnson's plan to create this uh, idea of herd immunity to coronavirus. In essence, I guess, allowing a number of low-risk people to get the virus, uh, making it harder to spread further later down the line. What are your thoughts on that? So th- there's two questions there you asked, really. Um, so the, what is the UK strategy compared to international strategy or mm-hmm. WHO um, guidelines? World Health Organization. There is a bit of a uh, disparity in terms of the way that we have managed the situation, and I think the 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 reason for that that has been put forward is that yes, you know, if more people get the virus, then once you develop immunity from after you recover from the virus, then you can't be infected again, and that sort of protects other people who haven't been infected. by the virus to stop it stop it spreading if, if if you have a lot of people who have had the virus built up immunity uh, they're less likely to get it again and pass it on and through the population um, and that's called herd immunity okay but it is a very different approach to almost all the uk's allies you know with other western democracies going for stricter measures immediately do you think that's a gamble well, I mean, um, you know, look at Italy, for example. They have had a more rapid um, spread and uh, more cases of uh, mortality, um, so people dying of the infection. It's caused things to speed up in terms of their response. Um, so it's a new disease, it's a new infection. Um, little is known about what it was going to do or how it was going to progress and... We're still learning quite a lot about these things. Okay, I mean, Robert Peston, the ITV journalist, uh, he was talking about the government's strategy yeah. to minimise the impact of COVID-19, to allow it, this idea to allow it to pass through the entire population. Um, but he was saying that if herd immunity is typically only viewed as a preventive strategy in vaccination programmes, and we don't have a vaccine, then achieving this herd immunity would require a significant proportion of the population to be infected and recover. What does that mean for the spread of the disease in the UK, particularly if you know we've got such a high population? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point because um, if you have a lot of people who get the virus, then that means also that you're going to have a lot of people that suffer from it uh, in, in an inadvertent way um, that die, potentially. Um, now, uh, you know, there was a strategy of delay, um, so we're trying to slow down the virus and then things have moved on to uh, sort of a lockdown situation where we're you know stopping kids going from to school now um, but it started off with isolating older people then st- sort of advising people to uh, stop gathering in large public places and now schools shutting down and now pubs and uh, social venues shutting down as well so um, we've kind of sort of caught up with everything I think and um, in a way to to try and minimize the the damage uh, that could be caused but at the same time uh, that would lead to potentially not enough people getting it in that way uh, that, that that in that strategy that that he's sort of alluded to that the so this uh, flattening of the curve yeah the flattening of the curve is really important um so uh, the World Health Organization and um, uh, most uh, epidemiologists agree that this is the strategy that we need to do. You know, limit the 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 
initial impact um, of the infection and um, and sort of allow uh, um, allow things to gradually um, become more widespread in uh, in in their population. Uh, and there's loads of reasons why that's important, and, and one is uh, one of the main reasons is firstly so we can control and monitor things and make sure that. Um, you know, people aren't getting unwell and also services aren't overloaded as well. So flattening the curve is really important. Okay. Uh, just another point I'd like to touch on. Uh, you know, from a personal point of view, a week or two ago, I was of a mind, actually, okay, I'm going to go along with this government strategy. You know, I consider, I'm 41. I consider myself to be quite fit for my age, quite healthy, mm. healthy diet. And I thought, well, actually, it might be a good thing if, if I get this virus early on it will just go through me i'll be fine and then i read a statistic from the us that 35 percent of people uh, that have been tested positive for the virus are under the age of 40. Um, so what does that mean in terms of young people does it matter should, should young people have this carefree attitude in terms of getting the virus can it affect them in a bad way so what we know from cdc in uh, America, which is the uh, Center of Control of uh, CDC. Center for Disease Control. Center for Disease Control, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, so what we know from them is that um, younger people are less affected by um, the infection. So num- the percentage of people who die from COVID-19 is much lower in younger people. So if you're over 80, there's a 14 Point eight percent, so 50, let's say a 15% chance that you may die from the illness. Whereas if you're sort of less than nine years old, then there's almost a 0% uh, chance that you will die from the infection. Now, people that are 50, above 50 to 60 years old, it's 1.3% um, mortality rate. 60 to 70, it's 36 So you can see it's, it goes up quite a lot as you get older. But part of that is that people are... As you get older, things tend to not work as well, and it, more of more other illnesses such as heart problems and kidney problems and diabetes and other things that make you more susceptible to infections. And if you have a serious infection like COVID nineteen, there is a chance that you know you could be seriously affected by this, and that can cause a critical illness to the point of causing death. What about these people who aren't part of these mortality statistics, but they're of a younger age uh, and they are in intensive care? I mean, is that something that they need? people need to be aware of? Is there any potential long-lasting damage to that? Yeah, so uh, the simple answer is that we don't know um, a lot because things are quite uh, new. And we know that, you know, if you have one infection plus another condition, so people with other conditions can have more complications. And if you have an infection with COVID-19, for example, and it's a viral infection, you could have another infection, a bacterial infection that causes pneumonia, for example, that could end up causing you a lot more problems as well. Uh, COVID-19 does cause respiratory so lung problems and that can cause you to end up in a situation where you are in ITU for example if it is very serious so potentially 
no matter what your age really you could end up with severe lung conditions that potentially could have some kind of lasting effect okay now on to uh, government guidelines so there are a lot of these most people have a good understanding of these, uh, but can you just give us a quick lowdown? Yeah, so um, there's lots of things that um, the government are coming out with on uh, NHS website. Uh, you can find this information if you type in 111 website, look at cor- the coronavirus or COVID-19 um, guidelines, um, just to see what you should do. And there's a lot of things that you can do in terms of preventative stuff. So washing your hands, basic stuff, um, you know, make sure you wash your hands after you touch anything that you potentially think that is a bit dodgy um, or, you know, if you're in a public place and you want to keep uh, hygiene, it's important to use hand sanitizers and wash your hands if possible. Now, the important bit before that is social distancing. So it's important to think about, you know, avoiding public places or large gatherings because they are essentially high-risk areas where you can pick up the infection if the infection is about and if you suspect that you have um, symptoms of uh, COVID-19 which can include quite a few symptoms that are non-specific the main symptoms that we're finding common symptoms that a lot of COVID-19 patients have are cough and fever and now the cough has to be a persistent cough so a certain amount of time um, over the over over a day and also it can be accompanied by fever there's also other symptoms as well that you can get um, you should refer to the 111 service um, via the website at first and if you're unwell uh, don't be afraid to seek further help what should you do if you develop the symptoms of COVID-19 Yeah, so if you um, think that you have the COVID-19 infection, you should, first of all, uh, depending on how unwell you are, if the symptoms are mild, have a look at the website and see what symptoms you have and uh, refer to that website. If your symptoms are a bit more than mild, sort of moderate, uh, then you may want to call 111 um, and... If you are severe, then you may want to call 111 or 999. Um, the current advice is that you don't see a GP because um, there's a big footfall um, in, in general practices. And uh, you potentially, if you don't have COVID-19, first of all, you may be exposing yourself to COVID-19. And if you do have COVID-19, you may be exposing others to COVID-19. So really important that you don't go see your GP without looking uh, at the guidelines. And some people seem to be confused at this idea of self-isolating for seven days or for 14 days. Uh, Can you tell us the the difference between those two? Yeah, so if you have symptoms, seven days. Okay, and what if you live with someone? It says, stay at home and don't meet up with other people uh, for 14 days if you share your home with someone who has symptoms of coronavirus. So the problem with COVID-19 is that it uh, is a period where you may not display any symptoms until about four days after you, uh, you get the infection. And you, after you get the infection, you could be transmitting the infection four days after it. So the 14 days is give, uh, giving sort of some time for you to 
potentially if you you know you're in contact with somebody not to isolate uh, to not to sort of spread it along to anybody else isolate yourself now if you get the symptoms then you'd have to extend that period um, you know uh, accordingly uh, I've got here some of the groups that are increased risk anyone aged 70 or older regardless of medical conditions and under 70s with underlying health conditions chronic respiratory diseases asthma COPD emphysema bronchitis etc heart disease kidney disease hepatitis Parkinson's motor neuron MS diabetes uh, sickle cell disease any form of weakened immune system uh, such as HIV and anyone seriously overweight BMI of 40 or above and then of course the government introduced those who are pregnant let's just talk let's going to talk as friends now because we are friends yeah I'm uh, <laughs> um we're in a very similar position in that yeah. we both have five-year-old daughters and we both have pregnant wives who are due yeah. soon. Very soon. Uh, and, you know, I am now working from home. We've taken Elodie out of school. And my wife, who works with the police, is working from home as well. Um, and it's an interesting time. Yeah. What do we do? You know, what... What are we supposed? We don't have any symptoms, but we're working from home. Oh, uh, now look, uh, you know, I'm I'm in a similar position. So I've got five year old. My wife is in her third trimester. I'm a GP, um, and I uh, run a care home for my family. Um, so, wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of things there that, you know, I'm doing, uh, and potentially there's a lot of risk there. Um, so the most important thing is to minimise the risk as much as possible. Try to reduce your interactions. Try to do some social distancing. Um, good personal hygiene is important. Looking after everybody, watching out for symptoms, that type of thing. Um, the most important thing is that you know, relatively speaking, you're young, you're high, you're low risk, um, unless you have any medical conditions. Um, you know, we just have to be careful. Um, there's a high chance that we may get the infection. It will be just a mild illness, and we will recover. So um, the most important thing, to, uh, else, uh, the other thing is to do is, you know, when we're doing things like shopping and uh, going out to do things, essential things that we need, we try and minimise the risk there. So if you can, get your deli uh, groceries delivered. Um, if you can, take your kids, um, you know, out for walks and things in s sort of in a controlled way, you know, go out or play, let them play in the garden. Um, and things like that and this is all part of social distancing um, but you know so what do you say so this morning you know I heard that people were queuing outside the, the Aldi yeah this is right next to each other an hour before it opened yeah. how smart do you think that is if, you know certainly not keeping you know six feet or two meters distance yeah I mean the, good idea no I think you know uh, it, I, I gotta say that you know it, it is risky to uh, do these things but people need food um, and people need to live um, so I understand uh, you know what's happening uh, try to get home deliveries try not to overbuy things you know uh, people need groceries and you know there is a lot of overstocking and of people's pantries to get what they need and if they think the world's going to end but it's not you know things will continue um, but yeah, social distance is important. Remember that you know you may be at risk or you may be posing a risk to others. Um, you know I've got to. I actually feel quite 
um, worried about the supermarket workers actually um you know and the you know the precautions they um they they should be taking um as well um you know they're, they're not wearing gloves some of them sometimes and you know maybe may or may not be washing hands between seeing customers and things like that so that's something that really needs to be looked at i think well that, that leads nicely on to the next part just talking now about hospitals so I've got this article here from Sky News. An NHS anaesthetist on the front line in the fight against the coronavirus. Anonymously saying, it's difficult to know where to start describing what is happening in UK hospitals right now. Maybe the most stark is that plans are being drawn up for what we do when we run out of oxygen. Oxygen's piped through the walls when the supply is interrupted. It's like turning a tap on and finding you've run out of water. Uh, we've got over 50 cases. Intensive care is nearly full of coronavirus patients. Uh, and this is from a couple of days ago. Uh, one patient on an ECMO, oxygenation machine, uh, and not many centres are capable of doing that. So let's talk hospitals then. Mm. Um, let's say worst comes to the worst and you have to be hospitalised. Yeah. What kind of condition are people likely to be in? And as this anaesthetist is talking about, what are the pressures on hospitals right now? Yeah, I mean, you've got to be quite unwell to go to a hospital. Um, and if you don't have COVID-19 and you go to a hospital and you're unwell, you could potentially pick up COVID-19. If you do have COVID-19 and you go to a hospital, that's probably quite serious. So you're going to need some help. Um, and depending on the level of severity of the illness, you may need, uh, you know, ITU um, help, where you'll need constant monitoring and support. Is that intensive care? care. Yeah, sorry, intensive yeah. care unit, yeah. Now, in terms of hospitals coping, um, that's a different issue. I don't work in hospital personally, I'm a GP, so... Um, but, you know, from, from all the information that we're getting from sort of, you know, Doctors' Association UK and other organizations and things that you know uh, resources are stretched uh, personal protective equipment such as masks and aprons and gloves um, are um, in short supply as, as well as um, hand sanitizing gel and other supplies essential supplies uh, for hospitals um, and that may include oxygen. I mean, I, I don't know how um, hospitals get their oxygen. Um, I, I believe they, they either they, they make it or they can um, get it delivered, depending on what, what facilities they have. Um, but I'm not too sure about that. But yeah, you know, there is a lot of pressure on the NHS. And the most important thing I can tell you is try and stay home, isolate, self-isolate if you are well enough to do so. If you're unwell, please seek um, medical attention. It's very important that you do. Um, and if you need it, you do need it. Um, the, uh, you know, don't be afraid to uh, ask for help. And that's what we're here for. One bit I'm not sure of is I've been unwell before. I've had flu before, certainly, you know, where I've been, you know, bedridden, where just walking up the steps, I've been absolutely exhausted, no energy whatsoever. At what point do people know, now is the time I need hospital care? Yeah, and that's not an easy answer. It depends on how you're feeling. Do you feel unwell? You have, you may have a high fever. Is it not settling? 
Are you unable to eat and drink? Uh, you know, and mm. do you feel drowsy? Yeah. If, you know, do, you, you may change color. You know, you may look a different color. When you feel like this is more than a mild illness, you should seek attention. Now, you know that that's quite a vague description. Um, but you know, if you have symptoms of uh, COVID nineteen, you should seek medical attention. Refer to the one 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 website as a start. Um, if it's more urgent than that, please call for help. Take the advice. Uh, I urge people to look after themselves and stay safe. Okay. Uh, so, obviously it says hospital staff caring for the growing number of those seriously ill. Uh, they also fear they could pass the infection on to other patients after catching it at work because of poor protection. Yeah. Uh, what do you think needs to happen to you know, improve this protection you know I saw uh, one thing that, that you sent me actually about someone who was complaining that their personal protective equipment was not of the standard as recommended by the World Health Organization and in actual fact they were being sent old equipment that had been redated in terms of it had to sell by date or use by date um, and it had been given a new date somehow. What, yeah, what, so the, there are some reports that you know the, uh, people are running out and not enough supplies are there, and um, the stuff that you're getting is inadequate and potentially out of date. Um, some of the information that I'm seeing is that that stuff has been stress tested and is okay to use. Um, more stuff is on its way. Um, there is supplies. Uh, we are assured by the government, and um, measures are being put in place to get more stuff um, in place. That we can't protect ourselves and potentially if we can't protect ourselves and we get infected we may pass it on to more vulnerable people uh, if we do then they may suffer complications and if we get unwell we may suffer complications which mean that you know you're taking out healthcare workers from an already stretched system and pressure so it's really important to just um, get the help that we need and keep advocating for you know um, doctors and nurses to be protected to be tested um, so that we know where we stand and how we can help other people I know um, this has been this inconclusive I believe but but not to use anti-inflammatories can you shed any light on that yeah, so WHO, uh, there was a lot of controversy about this when it initially was reported. Um, some people, some sources uh, saying that there wasn't evidence for this, um, and then some saying there was. Um, now, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are things like ibuprofen, naproxen, um, meloxicam, um, and those type of medications. Um, and from uh, the information in the, uh, that's coming from the World Health Organization um, they're saying that basically if you have COVID-19 then you mu you have to be careful that you, if you're taking um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories we call them NSAIDs um, for short so things like ibuprofen now ibuprofen can cause problems with you know your kidneys your liver and also your tummy um, and uh, in in COVID nineteen potentially can make um, you more unwell, so got to be careful and consult a consult some uh, advice if you if you do need these medications. If okay, uh, now I don't know if you've seen this, but yeah. um, I've got this uh, summary uh, 
passed on, this is from uh, uh, someone in Ireland, uh, about updated government plans from the perspective of the hospital. Yeah. Things that, that they need to be looking at. Emptying beds, uh, discharging those who can be discharged, postponing non-urgent surgeries, buying extra bed spaces in private hospitals, that's been on the news today, mm-hmm. uh, oxygen supplies and ventilators, PPE, as you mentioned, is that, is that the safety gear? Yeah, personal uh, protective equipment. Yeah, yeah like being sourced. And masks and things, yeah, being sourced, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, refresher training to be provided. Yeah. Uh, separation of COVID and non-COVID patients. Yeah. Uh, targeted staff testing as soon as capacity can take it to reduce isolation time. Uh, and I think that's an important one because what happens when... You know, if doctors and nurses and medical staff and support staff, perhaps, um, if they show symptoms, yeah, then isn't there a danger that be taken out of the system? Yeah, but they may just have a common cold or something. You know. Yeah, so it's important to test. Um, you know, p- uh, people at the moment. Unfortunately, the tests right now are quite rudimentary. Okay, so basic. Um, so they uh, they rely. We're relying on swabs to be taken of um sort of your nose and sort of back of the throat they're called nasopharyngeal swabs and then they're sent off to a lab and uh, the, the, firstly the test is expensive and it's a bit slow so what they are looking at now is developing blood tests which have a quicker turnaround and potentially a little bit more cheaper um, hopefully and that will be a quicker way of picking up these type of infections and screening um, stuff for uh, if they had the virus or if they're unwell. Um, so really important to uh, sort of look at these things. There's a lot of measures being put in place, like you said, opening up of bed spaces, um, increasing capacity by looking at private hospitals. And that's sort of been on the agenda for the last few uh, days or week or so. And it's really important that we sort of free up as many beds to cope, uh, you know, with with this pandemic epidemic in the UK. Yeah. Okay. Interesting thing I've got here as well. Now you told me yourself this is to be treated with caution, but this is some advice that allegedly is being given out to, to hospitals as well. I just wanted to see if you could comment on these. So for virus detection, the simplest way to distinguish coronavirus from a common cold is that the COVID-19 infection does not cause a cold nose or cough with cold, but it does create a dry and rough cough. Do you, can you confirm yeah, so, or deny that? Well, I mean, if you look on um, the 111 website, there's uh, the main symptoms are a cough, persistent cough, and fever. Okay, you can have either or of those um, and uh, have COVID-19. The problem with COVID-19 is the symptoms are very non-specific. Um, so, um, you know, we have to look at, you know, you know, how you have potentially got it. And that's what doctors will do. They will uh, look at the risks. And this is a new infection. So we, we're learning about this more and more. Like today, for example, I've gotten in, uh, read an article that, you know, takes away your taste. Uh, it's quite common for viral infections that affect your upper airway so your throat Mm. and nose to cause damage to your upper airway 
and that may affect your taste. So, you know, colds, flus, and other things do these things too. Um, so it's really difficult to discern, but you know, the, 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 the information that's given on 111 and the guidelines that are coming from, you know, uh, you know, higher up is saying that if you have a persistent cough, if you have a fever, then you can suspect that you may have COVID-19. Okay, uh, th- I think, and this one's quite interesting for those who, who may be concerned that, that they do have something. It says the virus is typically first installed in the throat, as you say, causing inflammation and dryness, and that can last three to four days, and then travels through the moisture present in the airways, going down to the trachea, uh, into the lungs, causing pneumonia that lasts about five or six days. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's why it's called SARS. Um, COVID-19, right? So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. So severe, meaning that it's, it's bad. Acute, meaning it comes on quickly, so in a space of days. Respiratory, meaning it affects your lungs. And it's a syndrome, so you have a host of different symptoms that cause a overall presentation uh, that give you mm. the COVID-19 sort of uh, symptoms. Interesting. Uh, and, and it that says can to pneumonia, yeah, like you say. Yeah, and it says that the pneumonia manifests with a high fever uh, and the difficulty of breathing. It says there may be a choking sensation, and that this is potentially a trigger to call a doctor immediately. Um, yeah. So I mean, if you're having um, these symptoms, it's really still important to speak to a doctor, okay? Because um, you could have these symptoms, they're non-specific, it could be something else, okay? Mm-hmm. And so it's important to, for a doctor to review you and assess you to make sure that it's not something else. There could be other things that could be wrong or there could be nothing that could be wrong. So it's important to just to get that reassurance if you need to. Um, now bear in mind that <laughs> the system is quite overloaded at the moment. So, you know, um, please refer to the 111 online resources first so do that first if you've got mild symptoms do that first then if you're still worried or you're still concerned speak to somebody okay if you're feeling unwell or the symptoms are you know you're really concerned speak to somebody because that's this is what we're here for we're here to you know to 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 assess you this is you know that's our jobs yeah and there is this and of course you know i agree entirely always refer to 111 um, but this is just a general thing that, uh, not necessarily conclusive test, um, that has been suggested that each morning if you breathe in deeply and hold your breath for 10 seconds, and you can do this without coughing, without difficulty, it shows that there is no fibrosis in the lungs. Um, what does that mean, fibrosis in the lungs? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm not sure um, about this. So, um it, you, it, what if you have an underlying condition then you can't do that anyway it's not really a specific mm-hmm. way of testing it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't rely on that to say that you have or haven't got the infection um, you know uh, I'm not sure uh, to be honest and I, I, I wouldn't be able to comment either way on something like that but, and I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence to support that okay so now prevention yeah. so, so again some ideas uh the virus hates heat and dies if it's exposed to temperatures greater than 27 degrees centigrade, 80 Fahrenheit. Therefore, hot drinks such as infusions or hot water, 
cups of tea or coffee, I guess, should be consumed abundantly during the day, which will kill the virus. Assuming if it's in the trachea. Avoid drinking ice water or drinks. Mm. Um, so, again, you know, we don't know much you know, about this infection, um, but we do know that these, uh, the infection does suffer in the back of the throat. Um, that will soothe the symptoms um, of a viral infection most of the time. I'm not sure if it will kill um, uh, the bacteria, and you should definitely not have hot drinks and scald the back of your throat. That's really dangerous, and you've got to be careful. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, but having said that, you know, I, I guess there's no harm in having a hot drink, but just be responsible and don't expect yeah. anything. There's, there's, there's nothing proven about this. No, I don't know. I don't have, I haven't heard anything. You know, just be careful. And also, I mean, I, I saw something recently that, that suggests we don't really know whether the virus will survive in, in hotter temperatures. Um, no, because it's not been hot yet <laughs> in yeah. England anyway. I mean, there's also this suggestion that, you know, we know that the sun's UV rays can kill yeah. a virus. And, you know, and this idea that vitamin D is good for you, good for your immune system, right. um, that kind of thing. And there was that case of the Spanish flu, you know, the last real severe pandemic of this type, I guess, that killed was it a couple of million people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Several million people. And this, you know, there was some, you know, maybe at best anecdotal evidence that patients were that were taken outside, um, exposed, uh, may have had uh, a better recovery rate. What, what do you think to that? Yeah, so limited evidence about fresh air um, and um, sunlight and vitamin D. Now, in, in the 1917 or 18, um, uh, there was a pandemic of flu and tr- uh, soldiers were treated outside and they, they found that you know, this sort of environment was conducive to people getting better. And that was just sort of incidentally noted whether that has any link, I'm not sure. Um, we know that viruses are fragile. Okay, so if they're exposed to things, then they can be destroyed. So potentially UV rays can destroy or, you know, damage, uh, you know, cell structures of viruses that can cause them to die. Um, I'm not too sure about vitamin D, but there is a, a link between vitamin D and improving respiratory symptoms, so lung in symptoms. Uh, so people with asthma, and there there is a small link that's being sort of you know um, uh, uh, sort of uh, researched about the link between good amount of vitamin D and reduced episodes or uh, severity of asthma. So. I'm not sure, to be honest, and, you know, these they, we will find out more. Yeah. What about this one? The coronavirus has a, a large size, 400 to 500 nanometers. Uh, sounds small to me, but okay. Uh, so face masks can stop it, but no special face masks are needed in daily life. Mm. A lot of controversy about using face masks, okay? So... Um, important to be used uh, when you're in high-risk environments by healthcare professionals interacting with a lot of patients and using um, protective personal equipment such as um, masks, aprons and gloves. Um, However, 
um, general public using face masks has been shown um, to increase the risk of um, viral infections because basically um, you've got something on your face, uh, you touch it, that, that, that causes irritation or you may put, you know, putting on a mask alone, it causes you to touch your face. Now, if, if you touch something that has the virus on it and then you put it on your face, uh, it's more likely to get inside of you. Um, and also whilst that mask is on you you may be constantly fiddling with it so that increases your risk of sort of getting an infection when potentially you may not have one and you can prevent it by just avoiding certain situations or you know reducing the risk in that way so the advice that has been given is um, you know masks um, kind of counter intuitively can make you more at risk of getting uh, COVID-19. If an infected person sneezes, medical professionals, this is from the point of view of, um, a distance of 3.3 metres will allow the virus typically to fall to the ground. Just going to talk a bit more about going forward. Just solutions here, just to, you know, hopefully reassure people. Uh, you know, we've got that a coronavirus test which reveals who has had COVID-19 but not shown symptoms, importantly, has been hailed as a game-changer. Sir Patrick Valance said Public Health England's work on the antibody test is progressing very fast and will provide valuable insight into the pandemic. That's very useful uh, if it is to occur. Obviously, yeah, it's not happening just yet. Yeah, game-changer. Uh, and obviously Boris Johnson plans to increase coronavirus tests to 25,000 a day. Obviously that will tie into important things also like getting, you know, medical professionals yeah, back into, yeah, yeah, getting them back into to help the effort. Now there's been a few ideas about um, treatments. One that's been, I've seen a few times, this idea that the anti-malarial uh, drug... Uh, hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, yeah. yeah. Um, that has a certain curative effect. According to reports in Xinhua, a Chinese news organisation, experts, it doesn't say who, have unanimously suggested the drug be included in the next version of the treatment and applied to wider clinical trials. Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah, it's said by San Yan Rong, deputy head of the China National Centre for Biotechnology Development. Mm -hmm. um, what do you I think I don't know really to be honest. Um, the information that uh, I have seen, the evidence I have seen so far, doesn't really point either way. Um, so um, I know trials are being held, other medications as well, but nothing really has been conclusive so far. There's vaccines being produced, uh, as we know, going into phase three trials, patient trials at the moment. But, that, that, you know, a vaccine is months out of it, really. I think any medication that we use at the moment will only just slow things down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then there's this other one here. I've got this from the Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Genentech said today it is launching a phase three trial, so it's, again, that sounds promising, to assess its marketed arthritis drug, Actemra, which is tocilizumab, uh, as a treatment for adults with severe COVID-19. I said it's working with the FDA on double-blind placebo-controlled trials. Enroll 330 patients worldwide, including the US. Patients will be followed for 60 days, etc. Uh, and this is something that they are hopeful for as a treatment for people hospitalised with the COVID-19 pneumonia. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, these things are a long way out. You know, sixty days is two two months, right? Mm. So by that time, I mean, if you look at the um, RO as we talked about earlier, um, you know, in about two months we'll probably reach the max, uh, you know, uh, you know, peak incidence of COVID nineteen in the community. So uh, I'm sure this will be useful later on if the infection re-emerges. I'm not sure how useful it will be right now, and right now it's being experimentally tried. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. Now we could we could continue with things like you know questioning our current state and our government strategy, but I, I guess it is what it is now. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about how Taiwan had learned harsh lesson from SARS yeah. and had kept infections under 50 despite being blocked by Beijing from being part of the World Health Organization. So kind of on their own back, life is going on as normal though. No, nothing really has changed except for the fact they had a real badass screening program from the off. So, you know, that's good. But, you know, I don't really want to continue with that because I guess we are where we are and we just need to keep going. But just, just to finish... The podcast. I just want to talk about community, really, what people can do to help. You know, one positive from this is that there has been this increase of community initiatives. Yeah, people... social helping each other and things like that. It's really important. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, and I've got a few things here. So, obviously, what people can do to help distancing, shopping responsibly. Yeah. But also things like supporting food banks. You know, we, we've all had this tough news that, you know, working lives have been affected yeah people are having to you know almost lose their jobs or at least not get paid um a yeah. lot of people on zero contract hours things yeah. like that having that and a lot of these people are already in, in in poverty and then that's right it's kids have been sent home as yeah. well so that's an extra cost to them if, if they're on free lunches at home more utility bills at home sure. because that, that you're using uh, home utilities more um yeah, I mean you're a teacher, Marvin. Right? I am, um, and you probably know uh, some kids at your school that are probably uh, you know reliant on school meals. You know? I do, and uh, you know uh, you got to wonder, you know, how are they going to be fed? So some of them are only getting that one meal um, a day uh, that they're having, and they're relying on school to get that. So, but you know, not only them, it's you know, there's a lot of working families that are hand to mouth and that are really going to struggle. Uh, with things and we have to be more socially conscious and we have to provide more social support and, and it's not about socialism or conservatism or Labour versus Tories or whatever this is about looking after your neighbour you know we all don't prosper as a society we, we won't prosper as a country really important to remember that we have to look after each other to anyone that's listening to this you know I think this is a real opportunity for us to you know to this is, you know, life change can be life changing for all of us in, in some fashion. And this is a real opportunity. And I think when we look back this time, you know, it'd be good to feel that we did do the right thing, not just on isolating appropriately, but also, you know, just acknowledging that there are people out there who this is going to be not just the stress of the, the virus or disruption, but, or disruption, but also the, the ability to properly nourish and, and that stress and that worry on top of everything else that goes with poverty. And it's an opportunity for people to um, donate, call your nearest food bank. I know near me that there's a couple of collections at different places. And if not, you know, you can seek out local charities uh, who will all be, whether it's Help the Aged or other 
other groups of people that 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 needs that need support. They're going to need more support now. Um, so please, please keep an eye out. You know, I love the idea. Our local uh, labour councillor has handed out these um, two slips. Mm-hmm. So you you have one for the neighbour to the right of you to to say whether you can help or you need help, and one to the other neighbour. You put your contact details. I had this idea, or you know, trying to get people on each street to do it. That's a mm. brilliant idea, mm. because then if every person only needs to do two homes, and yeah. if people do that, you know, then then yeah. that that support network's going to be there. There's a you know, there, there's lots of WhatsApp group popping up in communities uh, over the last few days. Um, I've been reading and you know, yeah, and seeing on the news that you know there's lots of support groups that are going on. If you know someone elderly in your community or on your road. It might be worth just, you know, if you're well and don't have COVID-19 symptoms, checking on them and making sure that they have what they need. And, if, you know, they may not be as savvy uh, to, you know, online shopping. And even online shopping these days is delayed and, you know, you can't even get things. The, you know, uh, you've you got to just wonder who's down the road from you and, you know, what, if everyone's OK. At the same time, be careful. Um, you know, social distancing is still important, but, you know, you, you, you do need to look after each other. So just to finish this, you know, would you say you had any particular takeaways for people to to really think about? Well, this is a time when, um, you know, we're at home. A lot of us are at home looking out with our families um, and also, you know, uh, speaking to our families remotely. This is a good opportunity to, you know, spend some time with the people that you love um, and also build those relationships with the people around you going to say you know we've got to be more prepped and things are only probably going to get worse before they get better and when they get better things might come back um, and we should be stronger um, for it so that's why I would take away from all of this. Brilliant thank you very much Ricky. You're welcome thank you for having me on. Great having you on Um, really appreciate uh, your knowledge and your expertise and just for me, just to finish, again, just, just a few takeaways. You know, to young people and anyone who knows young people, please communicate this. It is still possible for you to, to, to get seriously ill from this. Um, but in all likelihood, you are going to be healthy at the end of it. However, of course, there are elderly people. You know, it's important that we distance people who are isolating. But just in terms of who we are and, and this, this moment, this time, Look, we all have our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who lived through you know, the First or Second World Wars, times of rationing, things like that. And what did they have to do? They had to kind of step up to the plate, for want of a, for a better word. But this is a great opportunity. In the world we live in, we can be overly selfish, overly greedy. We can all be unpleasant from time to time. This is a real opportunity to feel good about what we're doing, to stay calm, to think about things, to have the right knowledge, but to be better people, you know, to be our best selves, whether that's for our family or our neighbours or looking after people or just behaving responsibly and just being being clued up. You know, if you're isolated, maybe it's a time to, to learn a new skill, learn an instrument, to just improve who you are as a person. The world is a great opportunity to be a much better place. So thank you for listening. I will see you again. Good night.
past.